the CEO of Shell explained that we didn't want to switch to renewables too quickly because that would, quote, imperil the dividends, unquote. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show, and right now, during our summer fundraiser, you can help support not only this show, but also great climate change organizations by donating to my climate ride and becoming a member of the show at the same time, and receiving a free Best of Left t-shirt made of recycled materials as a thank you gift. Just go to bestoftheleft.com and click the Summer Fundraiser banner for all the details. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, In Deep with Angie Coiro, The Green News Report, The Young Turks, and the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Here we have our environment, our climate melting down, our planet turning hostile towards us. And it's because of the activities, by and large, of one industry. Now, it's a multifaceted industry, but it's basically one industry, and that's the fossil fuel industry. Coal, oil, gas. Back in 1946, was just an absolutely brilliant piece over at CommonDreams.org. And Common Dreams... It does, it does not say who wrote this. I'm sorry. But in any case, in, in 1946, a, a group of industry executives. Now, keep in mind, 1946. I mean, this is even before I was born. And I'm an old fart. 1946, they formed a panel. This is a bunch of fossil fuel executives called the Smoke and Fumes Committee. Uh, but the Center for Environmental, uh, excuse me, the Center for International Environmental Law, CIEL, writes... And I quote, but the research was not meant to be a public service. Rather, it was used by the committee to promote public skepticism of environmental science and environmental regulations. The industry considered hasty, costly, and potentially unnecessary. You get this in 1946. By the mid-1950s, at the very latest, climate change was one of those issues. Initially, the Smoke and Fumes Committee of the fossil fuel industry executives was looking at things like asthma and cancer. But by the 1950s, they realized climate change was part of this. There was a research paper that was presented to the American Petroleum Institute, the API, the trade association for the fossil fuel industry, or at least for the oil part of it, by Stanford Research Institute in 1968. This is how long these guys have known this stuff. This report, which was given to the American Petroleum Institute in 1968, just been released, says, and I quote, significant temperature changes are almost certain to occur by the year 2000, and these could bring about climate change. If the Earth's temperature increases significantly, keep in mind, this was 1968, if this If the Earth's temperature increases significantly, a number of events might be expected to occur, including the melting of the Antarctic ice cap, a rise in sea levels, warming of the oceans, and an increase in photosynthesis. There seems to be no doubt that the potential damage to our environment could be severe. So what did these people know? When did they know it? And what did they do about it? What they knew in the 1950s and 60s was that climate change was a very real probability 
as an outcome of burning more fossil fuels. They knew this. They knew it would be destructive. Okay, They knew it, and they knew it then. Now, what did they do about it? Well, they started, you know, funding climate denial think tanks. They started lobbying members of Congress. They started putting out, you know, disinformation. Over at the Huffington Post, the associate editor of HuffPo Hawaii uh, writes, in 1968, a pair of scientists, this is basically the same story, uh, wrote a report for the American Petroleum Institute. They warned, man is now engaged in a vast geophysical experiment with his environment, the Earth, one that may be the cause of serious worldwide environmental changes. This was 1968. We've seen this movie before. We saw this with the tobacco industry, which kills a half a million Americans every year. Uh, right up until 1998, as I recall, was the year I think the tobacco settlement was going, you know, happened. They were merrily going along their way saying, oh, there's, there's no, you know, no definite, no clear correlation, no proven scientific link between our product, between cigarettes and cancer. You can't prove that nicotine is addictive. You had the, the, the five, six, seven, I've, I forget the number uh, of the senior, the CEOs of the tobacco industry testify before Congress. They all lied under oath. No consequences. They're rich white guys, but they all lied under oath. By the way, isn't that what they got Bill Clinton for? They impeached him for lying under oath. In any case, these guys were billionaire or multimillionaire, you know, executives in the tobacco industry. We, so we've seen this with the tobacco industry. We've seen this with the pesticide industry. We've seen this with the, we're seeing this now with the herbicide and the fungicide industry. I got stories about that to share with you as we continue through this program. We've seen this before. Industry doesn't give a rat's ass about anything except the bottom line. And it's gotten a whole lot worse since Reagan changed the tax code so that CEOs are heavily incentivized to buy back, you know, to have their corporation buy back their stock to jack up their own uh, executive compensation. We're joined by Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org and a scholar in residence at Middlebury College. His recent piece in The Guardian's headline, Let's Give Up the Climate Change Charade, Exxon Won't Change Its Stripes. Um, Bill, we're speaking to you at your home in Middlebury, Vermont. Can you talk about what happened at the Exxon meeting, its significance, what shareholder resolutions were voted down, and where you believe the movement should go from here? Sure. First of all, uh, uh, just to say, Anna, what a good job yesterday. And that's not an easy thing to do to get up in an auditorium like that and speak, literally speak truth to power. So good for you. Um, look, what happened yesterday at the Exxon meetings, the same thing that's happened at every Exxon meeting since 1990. There have now been upwards of 70 shareholder resolutions uh, put forward to do something about climate change, so, and most of them incredibly mild, merely give us a report about what you plan to somehow do someday to deal with some direction with climate change. Every single one of them has been voted down. 
Um, that's why, you know, the Rockefellers, whose family founded uh, the darn company, uh, divested all their stock and, and, and gave up in, in trying to change that way a, a, a year or so ago, and instead joined this huge growing movement to demand real change. Uh, and I'll note that one very good piece of good news yesterday, while um, Exxon was stonewalling and, and, and continuing its uh, time-honored traditions, uh, University of Massachusetts became the largest public university system to divest from all fossil fuels, um, which was a very uh, uh, powerful moment indeed in this big campaign. Um, I should add, too, that it's not just Exxon, though Exxon, because, as Anna says, we now know that they knew everything about climate change, that there's a, a sort of particular um, a particular horror in their story. But earlier this week at their annual meeting, the, the CEO of Shell said, explained that uh, we didn't want to switch to renewables too quickly because that would, quote, imperil the dividends, unquote. Um, we're living in a world, as you know, Amy, that's basically sliding out of control. 2016 is crashing every record we've ever had for a high temperature. We're losing vast swaths of coral reef. We've got unprecedentedly large early season fires burning in the boreal north. And this guy thinks the thing that's in peril is his dividends. That should tell you what you need to know. And Bill McKibben, could you say something about um, the progress that the divestment movement has made and why you think divestment is likely to be a more uh, successful strategy uh, with Exxon and getting them to change uh, their uh, climate policy? Well, I, I, I think that the real point of the divestment movement has been to kind of withdraw social license from these fossil fuel companies and thereby reduce their political power. The reason we haven't gotten anywhere on climate change for the 40 years that we've known about it is precisely because these guys wield so much political power. I mean, look, uh, Exxon knew perfectly well that what Anna's grandfather was saying was correct. They set to work climate proofing all their own drilling rigs and other installations to account for the sea level rise they now knew was coming. But at the same time, they set up this vast framework with others. Uh, of climate denial and deceit and disinformation. Um, and they continue to you know, hand out uh, campaign checks to precisely the politicians that make sure nothing ever happens on these issues. So the, the point at this point is to use this divestment movement as a vehicle to get that across. And it is working. It's not just or even mainly that there have been it became the biggest divestment movement ever. I think at this point, uh, you know, we're closing in on on four trillion dollars worth of portfolios and endowments that have uh, divested. The point is that it's taken the basic message, the message that we have five times as much carbon in our reserves than we any scientist thinks we could possibly burn. And it's gotten that through, I, you know, three or four years ago, that was people like me writing in, you know, Rolling Stone. Now it's the head of the World Bank, the head of the IMF, the governor of the Bank of England, speaking to the world's insurance industry at Lloyd's of London. Um, that message is getting through everywhere except Exxon, 
uh, and its ilk. Yesterday, uh, Mr. Tillerson was boasting about how the company was going out and making new finds of oil in new places around the world. We have five times as much carbon in our reserves already as we can burn. The idea that we should celebrate the exploration for new hydrocarbons at this point <clears throat> goes past irony into some dark place that I don't really have a name for. Bill, uh, Jane Mayer just did another major New Yorker piece, this one called Sting of Myself, about a shadowy right-wing organization, America Rising Squared, that targets you, Bill McKibben. Can you talk about this? Well, not really, because as you say, they're, you know, no one knows where, where their money's coming from and things. I just know that now uh, when I go out to speak, there are always people trailing around after me with video cameras and things. They said that it was that they were that it was the first time they you know anyone had done this on this scale to someone who wasn't running for president, which I have not the slightest desire to run for or anything like it. I, I, I don't know quite what to make of it, except it's sort of creepy. But um, there you go. It's you know on the list of problems afflicting the world. It's probably somewhat smaller than the fact that we just lost huge part of the world's coral reefs in the course of two weeks as this pulse of But what's water. the group and who the, is targeting you? Who's funding it? And how do you know this is happening? Well, we know it's happening because they announced it. They sent out a memo to Politico saying that they were spending all this money the, and, and having trackers everywhere. And now they put up little, you know, few second clips of me, not of anything me speaking, just of me and wherever I am uh, to prove that they're there. And uh, I, I don't know what's going to come of it. And no one knows who's funding it. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Today's episode is sponsored by Magoosh. Now, it's the rare soul who has anything nice to say about standardized tests, but now, at least there's Magoosh to take some of the sting out by bringing the whole process into the 21st century. Magoosh offers affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online, so you can log in anytime, anywhere, on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. And we're not just talking about college admissions here, we're talking about a wide range, including graduate-level exams. They provide online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. And they even offer friendly email support from their team of expert tutors. So for whenever you get stuck on a problem or concept, they're there to help. Their test prep program starts at under 100 bucks, and they guarantee you'll improve your score or they'll give you your money back. Join the 1.5 million students who have already chosen Magoosh. Go to Magoosh, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H dot com right now and get 20% off with the code LEFT at checkout. Thanks to Magoosh for their support. Prep smart, go far, enjoy the ride. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the sun. You refer to something during the Obama administration. This 
same template shows up all the time. Yeah. Paid experts produce fake research, converted into talking points, then repeated on television by paid shills, spread through social media, and when necessary, hammered into the public consciousness through paid advertising campaigns. So that's from the birth of the right message to how it gets out to all of us. Right. It's a machine. Yes, it, it is. It is a machine. And, and look, this book started by accident, actually. This, this book came into being, I shouldn't say by accident, I should say it started very organically. It started because I'd written a book on Fox News called The Fox Effect. And that meant I spent way too much time watching Fox News, which is an unhealthy activity. And I'm actually being serious about that. I, I used to say that jokingly. But a filmmaker named Jen Sanko, who I'm actually doing some events with uh, next week and, and following, uh, she made a film about her father's kind of descent into madness from watching conservative media called The Brainwashing of My Dad. It's, it's at, like, I actually heavily recommend this film. It's on iTunes and elsewhere. So when I say it's hazardous for your health, watch this film and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this, this actually is hazardous for your health. So I wrote this book on Fox and you realize when you watch enough Fox News that the part of the business model of Fox, part of the actual brilliance, and I say that fully like thinking it's brilliant of Roger Ailes is you know, television news journalism is really expensive to produce because you have to go out and you have to find information, you have to create information, you have to send reporters, you have to do all this reporting. Fox is interesting because part of their model is like, we don't do that a lot. What we do is just stick two people in the studio and they yell at each other for a while. And that's, it's actually a brilliant profit model, right? It's much cheaper to stick two people in a studio. You got to send them a car, you got to set up a mic, whatever, but you basically have two people yell at each other. So I started saying, where did these lies come from? Who lies? You know, we often talk about zombie lies. So in the zombie apocalypse, there's going to be a patient zero. I, I started saying, who's the patient zero of these lies? And I started tracing them back. And over and over and over again, I found that there was a group of individuals who, for profit, both financial and ideological, were at the center of creating lie after lie after lie you hear in the media. And, and I'm very cautious in the book about what I define as a lie. A lie has to be something that is provably false. It can't just be, a, it's not a disagree. It's not that they're conservative and they're wrong. It's something that's provably false. And over and over and over again, I found the same pattern of a group of people who invent a lie, who profit from it uh, commercially and ideologically. And actually those two things are intertwined. And, you know, following this pattern of disseminating false information. Ari Ravenhoff is my guest here. And the book that has come out is Lies Incorporated, the world of post-truth politics. If you're just tuning into this show and you'd like to hear the whole thing, you can find all of it online at indeepradio.com. Let's talk about cognitive bias. And, okay. I, and I want to address the people who are listening who might hear what you're saying about Fox and say, as we established, you're liberal, I'm liberal, progressive. But they can say, look, it's cognitive bias. You listen to Fox. You think you have the statistics in your favor that this is true. You think you can look up facts that say this is true. But what you're discussing is this mirrored world where everyone has a handle on their own facts. Well, that's exactly what I mean by post-truth. We've entered a world where liberals and conservatives, we don't just disagree on issues, right? We, we disagree on the actual facts. And this is, this is actually an important political development and one that is highly toxic. Because if I leave today and on the way back to San Francisco, God forbid, we get into a car accident, right? And lawsuit goes to court. The judge will say before the trial begins, here are the stipulated facts you were driving. You were driving in this car. You were driving this car and the cars hit each other. Now we'll decide who's at fault for said accident, right? But in a court, there are stipulated facts. 
In political debates, we have entered a world where progressives believe one thing, conservatives believe another, and the basis of facts in an argument are so separated that you can't debate. Think about the debate about climate change, right? It's not a debate to say, I think the earth is warming and somebody else says, no, it's not. And another person says, no, the earth is cooling. That's a debate about reading a thermometer. That's not a policy debate. And we've left, we've left that arena and it's, it's intentional. In the book, I directly quote one of the members of Lies Incorporated, one of the most notorious ones. His name's Richard Berman. And Richard Berman is a, is a, is, honestly, I say this about very few people. I actually truly believe him to be a sociopath. Um, <laughs> well, in fact, if I can interject, the first thing you say is Richard Berman is a liar. Yeah. That's how you open the book. And Richard Berman, think about like an industry that you would classify as not a good group of people, tobacco, fast food, you name it. He is like the guy behind it. Sugar. He's worked for them. In the late 90s, he ran a campaign against Mothers Against Drunk Driving uh, to classify them as evil. He's run campaigns to claim that pregnant women should eat more fish because mercury is totally cool. I'm not, and I wish I were joking about this, but he gave a presentation to a group of oil executives and, 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 and energy executives. And it was a really telling presentation. He gets up on stage and he says, he says, here's the thing. My job is not to win. My job is to get us to a status quo because at the status quo, everything stays the same. So my job is to muddy the arguments and take us to a status quo. Because if we're at, if we keep ourselves the same, we win. That's what the, that's the exact model of the tobacco industry. That's the exact model of the asbestos industry. That's the exact model of all these industries that desperately were trying to hold on to financial power while, frankly, in the case of tobacco, killing people. Well, in fact, there's something in the book that I was surprised to read, and it really, it, it countered what I've always believed to be true. I yeah. always thought that this idea of countering facts for your own gain was necessarily the gain of money. It yeah, was necessarily not. about getting rich or staying rich or keeping your industry bringing in a steady income. But you say that's not necessarily well, for it. for industries it is. Uh, right. But you think about the people involved, and I, I can't credit myself with this. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, who's a brilliant Harvard professor, actually uh, sent me in this direction. She wrote a, a brilliant book about this uh, called Merchants of Doubt, uh, which I heavily recommend the book. There's also a movie. You can watch the movie if you don't want to see, if you want to read the book. But uh, essentially, she looked at uh, the climate denial industry. And she looked at the scientists involved. And we often think, and I thought this, th they sold out for the money, right? Those scientists who were in the climate denial movement, the tobacco scientists, she looked at both of them. By the way, a lot of those scientists are the same scientists, same guys, actually. And she said, oh, those guys are just in it for the money. Turns out, not true. They were in it for ideological reasons. If you, if you look at what they said, what they wrote, what, you're like, what is tobacco and climate have to do with each other? Well, these scientists were cold warriors. They were people who grew up a, a lot in, in terms of science, developing uh, satellites to, and missiles and other things for the defense industry. And they really, truly believed what they were doing was saving the world from communism. That was their, that's what they thought they were doing. And they were mission driven. And they came to believe that any regulatory encroachment was a step towards communism. And therefore, any regulatory encroachment needed to be battled back. And you see, actually, this terminology f uh, flying around the climate denial world where, and this isn't something, when progressives hear this, they're like, really? You know what a lot of uh, the climate denial world calls uh, environmentalists now? They call them watermelons. Because you're green on the outside and red on the inside. I'm not, 
And, and it, it comes from that, uh, that, that you see that channel through. So you see these scientists. Now, the money's nice. Let's, let's be clear. It's not that they don't like the money. They, they like the money. Um, you see one of the early tobacco scientists. This is interesting. Uh, why did he become a tobacco? This guy was a noted uh, noted scientist, National Academy of Sciences, etc., college president. Why did he get involved in, with the tobacco industry? Well, he was, a, he was a eugenicist, and he firmly believed that all human maladies were related to genetics. And if tobacco caused cancer, then genetics didn't cause cancer, and his whole life's work was out the window. So he spent time with the tobacco industry trying to prove that lung cancer was a genetic cause. Now, Obviously, we know, we know the facts of the situation is they, it contributes, right? There are people, George Burns can smoke till he's in his 90s and be totally fine, and other people are much more susceptible to cancer. There is a genetic factor, obviously, but he, he did it because he, at the time, he believed this was questioning his wife's, life's work. Now, did he like the money? Of course he liked the money. Did he like the ability that he had to hand out all these huge grants from the tobacco industry to other scientists? Of course he did, but it was about ideology, and it's kind of that linkage, money plus ideology is kind of the sweet spot here. But if that's something that is, you know, based in the Cold War and based in old thinking about yeah. communism, are we talking about something that's going to change generationally, like the further we get away from those eras? That well, there are always new, new issues. And new there, are other, there are other motivations, right? You see these motivations in different, in different people. You see motivations such as, like Betsy McCoy, the woman who invented death panels on Obama's health care. I, I truly believe when I, I've just, I spent way too much time like reading her stuff, looking at her record, um, meeting her on a few occasions, which was more than interesting. And I, I truly believe she really loves, loved like being in the spotlight, loved being on stage, loved being the center of attention. And she had, her track record is she started out in uh, lying about Hillary Care in the 90s, and in fact, was credited by a number of Republicans, Bob Dole, Newt Gingrich, etc., as the woman whose article in the New Republic brought down Hillary Care in the 90s. And then she goes and invent, and it was an article full of lies that was critiqued. The New Republic apologized for it. And then she invents death panels, lies again. And in between, she had like risen so high up, she became lieutenant governor of New York, and then that didn't go very well, and she ended up into obscurity. Death panels meant she was on The Daily Show. She was on TV. She was on Fox News. I truly, and you heard, you see some of her aides talk about how much she desired that limelight. That was the profit for her. Here's what it sounded like this week at the Republican Party's platform drafting committee. We're, we're just we're adding one word, and it's the word clean between abundant and affordable. Adding the word clean. That's all they're doing. Adding the word clean. Yeah, that's the Republican Party's official platform committee that adopted that position on Monday in advance of their national convention. They call Internet pornography a, quote, public health crisis, but not coal, despite the fact that coal literally causes the death and disease of tens of thousands of Americans every single year. 
Self-described historian and author David Barton passed the amendment with the help of Wyoming Republican Senator John Barrasso. I would insert the, the adjective clean along with coal, particularly because of the technology we have now. So the Democrat Party does not understand that coal is an abundant, clean, affordable, reliable domestic energy resource. Who knew coal is a clean resource? Really? Yep. And the vote was unanimous to label toxic coal as clean. Unbelievable. But the technology that Barton was referring to, it's carbon capture. It's an epic and expensive failure, as detailed in a blockbuster investigation by The New York Times of the taxpayer subsidized Kemper Carbon Capture Plant in Mississippi. Yet the clean coal canard lives on. Well, Republicans don't read The New York Times, and I'm not sure they actually read anything. Meanwhile, 19 Senate Democrats called out the climate change denial industry on the Senate floor this week. The web of denial of interconnected think tanks and front groups funded by the fossil fuel industry that have waged a decades-long propaganda campaign to deceive the public about climate science. Here's Minnesota Democratic Senator Al Franken. These companies are worried that if people knew what their products are doing to the planet, they would stop buying their products or public policy would drive the markets away from their products. So in order to protect their bottom line, they set out to misinform the public. That's what they do for a living. And ExxonMobil is still funding the climate change denial industry, despite claiming otherwise. That's according to a new analysis of Exxon's charitable contribution disclosures by Desmogblog.com. And I, I called through the air that night, a calm sea voice without line. I could only smile, I've been alone sometime. For those of us who don't deny the existence of climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our own homes and offices where available. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuels. And of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live in the east, northeast of the U.S. and want to get the very same wind power I'm using, just go to ethicalelectric.com slash best to sign up. They're currently serving residential and commercial customers in Delaware, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. Soon, they're going to be expanding to Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, and eventually Texas. If you're in another area of the U.S., then I just recommend Googling the phrase buying green power. You're going to find the Green Power Network from the U.S. Department of Energy, and there you're going to be able to find the green energy suppliers in your area. Again, that's ethicalelectric.com slash best. That link is also available on the sidebar of my website, or simply Google buying green power. Or if you're outside the U.S., you're on your own. Several months ago, it was revealed that Exxon uh, has, at least since the 1970s, been funding climate change denial. They knew back in the 70s that uh, carbon emissions, their specific industry, 
was contributing to something called global warming. Now at the time, people did not know what global warming was. We didn't understand climate science or anything like that. The, the federal government itself did not know it, but Exxon did. So for decades, they covered it up. They funded organizations that actively went out there spreading misinformation to tell us that climate change was not real. And so even after all of this came to light, even after Congress has admonished Exxon for doing this, even in the face of all of the lawsuits that Exxon is facing as a result of this cover-up, we find out this week that they're still out there funding climate change denial groups. Um, look, Exxon, one of the largest corporations in the United States, possibly around the world, tens of billions of dollars in profits every year. And they're funding climate change denialists, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars here, a couple hundred thousand there. And that's all it takes to prevent any kind of action on climate change. And that's a drop in the bucket, especially when you consider they're essentially playing with house money at this point because the federal government gives them subsidies totaling in the millions just for Exxon every single year. So they're using the government's own money to uh, fund these think tanks and politicians to deny climate change. And we're allowing it. The federal government is allowing that to happen and they're not doing anything about it. You know, they, they, they met on Capitol Hill. They pulled Exxon in and said, what you've done is a travesty. It's horrible. You've set back human progress and that's it. They don't do anything. Exxon is not facing any real punishment here. And even the lawsuits against the company, they're not necessarily seeking any financial damages. They just want their hands on the documents. So the big question is, what do we do? How do we stop this from happening? And the answer is you have to get out there and vote. But more importantly, you have to do homework before you vote. And I know that sounds like a whole lot to do, but trust me, when someone is running for office, look them up in open secrets or, or in any other kind of, you know, funding database and look who is funding their campaign, who has given them money, what corporations are out there putting money into this person. And then ask yourself, why, what do they want in return? And that is the only way that we can get these climate change deniers out of Congress. We can get them out of the Senate. We can get them out of politics. Same thing goes for every other corporation. If a company, a corporation, an industry is funding a politician, it's because that industry knows that that particular person, if they win, is going to give that industry huge favors in return. Let's vote them out. Wake up, God. Move yourself. Wicked men. Crush your children. We pray. Okay, Desi Doyen, after all of these years, I'm sure you're tired of all of these tired old myths, <laughs> but they don't ever seem to die. No matter how tired, no matter how old they are, if they tell them on Fox News, they keep getting told 
And now they keep getting told by Donald Trump. Yep. If you are a regular listener to the Green News Report, you already know that house cats kill far more birds than wind turbines. So do skyscrapers. You also know that the price of solar energy and wind energy is plummeting and is now competitive with or cheaper than dirty, polluting, conventional fossil fuels. But those facts clearly have not reached Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump. The alternative is so expensive. It's so expensive. And honestly, it's not working so good. I know a lot about solar. I love solar. But the payback is what? 18 years. Oh, great. Let me do it. 18 years. The wind kills all your birds. All your birds killed. Of course, in reality, rooftop solar panel prices are rapidly falling and now pay for themselves on average in less than nine years. And wind turbines don't kill all the birds. (laughs) Far from it. So why does Donald continue to repeat these tired old myths? Because he likes recycling. Uh, there you go. He's also because he's a tired old man. But did you say that skyscrapers kill more birds than wind turbines? Exponentially more. The type of skyscraper, for example, that Donald Trump builds all over the world? Yep. He's killing all your birds. All your birds. Although the national political conventions over the last two weeks demonstrated stark differences between Democrats and Republicans on climate, many young voters apparently don't know that. According to a new poll by youth climate activist group Next Gen Climate, 44 percent of millennial voters living in battleground states believe that there's no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump on climate change. (laughs) So, hey, millennials, Clinton accepts climate science and wants to expand renewable energy. Trump calls climate science a hoax and wants to expand fossil fuels. Now, a lot of those millennials are critical of Hillary Clinton that she hasn't done enough or won't do enough on climate change. Any thoughts on that? Yes, it's true. She does not go nearly far enough. However, that doesn't mean she's a climate science denier, just like Donald Trump is. Fair enough. As I've mentioned on the show before, I'm researching and writing a new book about how people change their minds and why they don't, and how you can change other people's minds and how individual mind change scales up to social change. And Stockness was one of the first people I interviewed because he put together this strategy for science communicators who find themselves confronted with climate change deniers. And of course, he also is trying to help scientists who find themselves in that weird situation where they are dealing with people who don't believe that they are experts on this topic. They don't believe that they actually know what they're talking about. They are denying them. They deny the fact that they have any evidence whatsoever that climate change is real. So he's developed a psychology-based strategy for working with people like that. And I thought it was incredibly interesting. And since I'm on the road right now, I thought for this episode, I would just present what he had to say. When I interviewed him about that strategy and the guidebook he published on it last year. Yeah, this is what I call the, in, in the 
This issue, uh, the psychological climate paradox. Uh, and um, the paradox is really that since 1989, that's 25 years, 26 years now, um, the amount of scientific facts and the certainty of the science has been growing very strongly. So we have had like five IPCC reports and more than 30,000 new uh, climate science articles published, which all underline the, the seriousness of the problem. But if you look at the polls, um, the weird thing happens is that since 1989, um, people's concern for climate change has actually declined. Uh, and um, this psychological climate paradox is particularly prevalent in um, wealthy democracies such as the U.S., Canada, UK, Norway, Australia, uh, which are both um, uh, like to see themselves as uh, rational, modern, and uh, but also petroleum-based mm -hmm. uh, economies. So what I've done is to really uh, condense the, let's say, the three or four hundred articles that have been published within psychology and um, sociology and social anthropology into a set of psychological barriers that create this paradox. So there are psychological barriers inside us or mechanisms that come into play when there is, uh, uh, shall we say, an uncomfortable um, science message that's coming our way. So you are... Uh Early on in the book, you, you write about how there is a sort of a, a golden rule to psychotherapeutic approaches. And um, you talk about how when we have something that seems like it's been a solution in the past, uh, mm -hmm. like a habitual solution, that we can use it so often that it becomes part of the problem. And we end up doubling down our efforts when facing difficult problems instead of trying to go about <laughs> moving to a different course. Could you sort of elaborate on, on that? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of quite common, as you say, within coaching and psychotherapy, that if you have a problem, you try harder the way you have tried to solve it. And then gradually, what you do is, by pushing harder and harder, you're just reinforcing the problem, because you're doing something that also contributes to, to the problem. And this has been the case in terms of uh, climate science communications, because um, there has been this uh, conviction that if only we could get the facts out to people then they would kind of come to their minds and senses and recognize that this is important or this is serious. Uh, however, having tried that and seen that it hadn't, didn't have the intended effect, uh, what has the climate science uh, communicators done? Well, they're doubled their efforts and put a little bit of doom and apocalypse into it. If we don't change our ways now, we're on our way to a four degree plus or even worse, a burning world. Mm -hmm. and, to, and to, But for them as rational messengers, rational scientists, they wouldn't say like burning world or toast world. No, in the IPCC report, they come up with an incredibly communicative name of RCP 8.5. <laughs> and... This is one example, you know, by sticking so hard to your science that you tend to forget that you're actually uh, trying to reach out to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gets the opposite effect of what you intended, which is that people distance themselves from it and are turned off. 
So, I mean, I, 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 you see a lot of these videos. I, I remember something that went around on the internet a while back. It was a clip from um, HBO's The Newsroom where the, they had the climate scientists saying that we're all doomed and everything. And I think that that stuff, I would speculate that that sort of thing is really sort of a dog whistle effect. So that like all the people who already are already on your side, they are the ones who watch that kind of stuff and read that kind of stuff and say, look at this. And they share it around on their social networks. But, but among the people who are opposed to this or deny it or, or for whatever reason uh, feel like they that this is not a message that they accept, those that just bounces off of them and, and becomes evidence for how crazy the other side is. And so um, and that's, that's sort of the gist of what I see in a lot of what you talk about in this book. So what this if this rational strategy, you know, the, our quote unquote rational strategy doesn't work this confrontational thing doesn't work. This sort of shoving the facts down people's throats doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Mm. And, and what is the, what is a better broader alternative to just saying, look at this fact, look at this fact. Exactly. Um, so in a way, um, when the scientists have been pushing, uh, facts at people, it's been repeating the same experiment over and over and seeing that it has, has the same outcome but not uh, being willing to change how you do it. So the, the principle then is we should do something else. We should try something else than just pushing the facts. Mm -hmm. And the reason it doesn't work is that those who are, as you mentioned, ready to take it in, they have already heard. Um, so you could kind of segment the um, population into six main groups, if you will. Uh, some say they are alarmed, and this is the, about 13% of the population, and they have heard and they have understood. Then there are a, a group called the concerned, which are like 31%, and they're also quite convinced, but even if they want a more vigorous policy, they're somewhat less involved in the issue. And then you have the rest of the population, which then adds up to typically a little bit more than 50%, who are either cautious, disengaged, doubtful or downright uh, dismissive of the whole issue. So, among these other groups, um, uh, the 13%, th uh, the 87%, uh, the, the, uh, the um, quite a few psychological barriers, as I mentioned, uh, are involved in creating this uh, negative impact of from climate science on people's concern. Mm -hmm. uh, I give these names that all start with D just for the kind of yeah, simplicity. Sure. Let's, let's go uh, through these. These are, these are really cool. These, these are your <laughs> five Ds of, uh, of climate. Well, the, uh, not really denial. No, uh, denial's in there. The five Ds of, of how would you put it? How would you put it? Yeah. Um, it's the five psychological mechanisms that kind of uphold the psychological um, paradox of mm -hmm. the climate. That we, okay. the more facts we get, the less uh, concerned we go. Um, and the first of these is, as I briefly mentioned, distancing. Because when we um, hear about climate change, it's typically positioned in the year two thousand one hundred mm -hmm. or two thousand two hundred. Like you know, you've maybe heard the news that Antarctica is now melting. There's no way it's going to be stopped. And in 200 years, there will be more than a meter of sea level rise. Well, when people hear that, uh, they think, 2,200, did you say that? <laughs> and it's so way out distance beyond what people uh, care about in their ordinary lives, uh, which is like this month or this week. 
uh, that um, the issue importance kind of just goes down compared to the other more pressing stuff we have on our on our to-do lists. Um, so there's the distance in time, and there's also distancing in terms of social um, or, or the space, where when typically they've been using a lot of imagery of melting ice and polar bears and the flooding in Bangladesh or uh, uh, cyclones in the Pacifica, and all these images are very distant in space from us. So it's happening far in the future, and it's happening far away from me. And thirdly, the people who are typically um, uh, suffers the consequences of climate change, they're people I don't really know. They're uh, socially distant from me. I don't know them. I don't know the uh, even know somebody who knows them. Mm-hmm. And, and this uh, social distance, so to speak, creates um, a lowering of concern, particularly if uh, it's said like, uh, you know, uh, one million people were displaced by the storm. But we know that people don't really relate well to statistics such as that. One person is a tragedy, but one million is statistics. Mm-hmm. And um, we have yet another way of distancing ourselves from it, and that is uh, in terms of responsibility. When we hear about um, uh, politicians and negotiators and all these international uh, COP rounds, like we'll have another one now in Paris in this December coming up, but we had them before, like in Copenhagen, Warsaw, Lima, etc. And what we hear is that people who we don't know uh, stand up and say, we must act now, and then everybody uh, agrees that, <laughs> the only thing they agree on is that they will meet again next year. <laughs> right. And so it's outside my scope of influence, so to speak. Um, well, it's a psychological concept. I can care and do something about what I have a kind of self-efficacy in the terms of if I do it, it will have an effect. But with these negotiations that are so far removed from me in responsibility, it just creates helplessness and uh, I want to kind of give up feeling. So the first barrier is very important in terms of creating this reduction in the sense of urgency and in the, in the sense of uh, felt risk or, and concern. It seems so strange, though, because, I mean, we have all these, there are all these mechanisms of distance when it comes mm. to this issue, but it seems like, you know, we, everywhere I am, I am being affected by climate. Every, every, like it's a persistent part of our day-to-day lives, yet it's strange that we would find, have, feel a psychological distance from the actual issue. Um, is there is pro, is part of that a problem? Is part of the problem that people sort of conflate weather and climate as being the same thing? You think maybe? It's uh, interesting point you mentioned there because people tend to um, get more concerned uh, about global warming when there's been a hot period, and if there is a cold period, then the concern falls. And this is even statistically reflected in. Uh, in um, news media and the types of articles that are published. So the number of editorials and the number of articles about climate change, they go way up if there's a heat wave, and then when it goes cold, they go way down. Um, <laughs> so this just shows to me how dominant, psychologically speaking, in our attention, what is uh, that the near takes predominance mm-hmm. of the more distant or the long term. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to doom. This is, uh, it, yeah. was, it would seem like, on the surface here, it would seem like 
these messages of doom would get people to act, but it, uh, you say that it actually ends up backfiring. How does that work? Yeah. Well, um, as um, the framing, so to speak, of climate message has been that um, if we continue as today, we'll all end up in a burning planet or in hell, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this doom and apocalypse framing um, sets up a state of mind where we are felt somewhat guilty. Uh, there's a certain fear in it. And um, what uh, is quite well known to psychology is that if people feel fear and guilt, then they're not really motivated to get engaged. Rather, they quickly learn uh, what we call avoidance behavior. So on the one hand, we do habituation to it. We heard it so many before, times before. It seems like it's always the end is nigh, <laughs> uh, always the, the last times. Uh, and then um, uh, if we feel any fear and guilt still after that, we tend to get pacified by it. Uh, we do not get active and want to do something with it. So fear and guilt is good at making people want to avoid the messenger and the message. Uh, and we quickly learn uh, how to filter it out. So that's the problem with using doom as the main framing for uh, climate message. It backfires very quickly on the on the um, on the issue. The children outside all are laughing under perfect skies, the shapes and patterns in the season. Make me feel alive, I wanna shout it from the rooftop And tell the world that I was blind But now I see what's right in front of me It's a beautiful world, I see Everything's differently It's a beautiful world, I see You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline. We've heard a lot today about climate denial, profits over people, and looking the other way when it comes to climate change, so we thought we'd highlight a perfect example of those destructive behaviors in action. Just last week, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers approved all construction permits for a company called Energy Transfer to break ground on the Dakota Access Pipeline, also known as the Bakken Pipeline, a $3.4 billion oil pipeline running through four states which would cross the Missouri River less than a mile from the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota. What's worse is that the Corps approved these permits despite having several meetings with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, which expressed concerns that the pipeline would travel through ancestral lands and be a health risk when it leaks. Not if, But when? Because from 2012 to 2013 alone, there were 300 oil pipeline breaks in the state of North Dakota. Now, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is suing the Army Corps of Engineers for what they see as the undermining of the Clean Water Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, and the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. The children of the Sioux Nation have been at the forefront of this battle since the beginning, with efforts backed by major climate organizers like 350.org. In May, a group of both Native and non-Native youth ran a 500-mile spiritual 
spiritual relay from Cannonball, North Dakota, to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers office in Omaha, Nebraska, to deliver a statement against the oil pipeline and a petition calling for a full environmental impact assessment. And now, as the pipeline is underway, they're running for their lives again, this time from Nebraska all the way to Washington, D.C., In her Change.org petition, 13-year-old Anna Lee Rain Yellowhammer wrote, quote, I can only guess that the oil industry keeps pushing for it because they don't care about our health and safety. It's like they think our lives are more expendable than others, unquote. Not only does this project ultimately impact all of us, but no frontline community should stand alone in the fight for climate justice. So here's what you can do. Visit respectourwater.com. That's R-E-Z-P-E-C-T, ourwater.com, to sign the petition to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, read the letters from the youth of Standing Rock, and get updates on the effort. Then share the petition on social media with the hashtag RespectOurWater. If you live anywhere near the Missouri River or its tributaries, call your legislators to oppose the pipeline and join the Bakken Pipeline resistance made up of tribes, landowners, and environmental groups protesting and bringing awareness to this issue. The segment notes include the links to all of this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if fighting for climate justice and calling out government hypocrisy on climate change is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting the Standing Rock Reservation youth to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Fighting climate change isn't all about marches on Washington, and it's not even all about who we elect to Congress and the presidency. The front lines of the climate crisis are in the regions and communities that have the least political power and are the most likely to be marginalized, and it's our job to make sure that everyone, from the government down to the single protester standing up to protect their home and their environment, knows that those communities don't stand alone. So again, show your support at respectourwater.com. We just heard clips featuring Tom Hartman laying out the history of climate denial dating back to the 1940s. Democracy Now! spoke with Bill McKibben about Exxon and the importance of the targeted divestment campaign. Angie Coiro on In Deep talked with Ari Rabenhoff about the structures of the climate change lie machine. The Green News Report talked about the GOP adding the word clean to their party platform in support of coal, even though there is no science suggesting that coal can be clean. The Young Turks discussed the news that Exxon is still funding climate denial organizations and politicians even after they said they stopped. The Green News report then exposed again some of the old myths about renewable energy that Donald Trump has been spreading around. We heard a discussion on the You Are Not So Smart podcast from Boing Boing about the psychology of climate denialism. And finally, you just heard our activism for today in support of the Respect Our Water campaign. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Justin calling from Bend, Oregon. Been listening to your show for a long time, probably about five years now. It's the first time calling in. I just uh, listened to your recent episode where you 
talked about Jill Stein at the end and, and the voting, um, the ranked voting uh, phenomenon. I think it's a great idea. In Oregon, we have vote by mail, and I think there's maybe only one other state that does that, maybe two. Um, and, and it's really a good system. I mean, you get your ballot ahead of time. You have plenty of time to go over the uh, voter pamphlet, read the in-depth um, articles about the candidates or the uh, ballot measures that are being voted on. And you, you have enough time to research on your own and, and make your decision ahead of time. And then you can just drop the ballot off at your courthouse or mail it in from your home or something like that. I don't understand why more people don't get behind this in other states in the country. It just seems like a great system. That combined with the ranked voting, I think, uh, I think is just probably the most optimal type of voting system that you could have in our current uh, electoral system that we have right now. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. Thanks. Hi, Jay. It's Sally from San Francisco. Like you, I am a Bernie Sanders supporter who is going to very much for sure vote for Hillary this fall. My concern is that a lot of the people who I know who were supporting Bernie Sanders are still very negative about her and I would like to help them figure out something else to do with their energies and their time. And I'm trying to see if it's possible to put together just a group of actions that they can take that would make them somehow feel like they are able to do something that is proactive rather than just not go to the polls. So that would include like a slate of candidates to support some initiatives to support people like wolfpack.com, etc. Anyway, I looked through your activism um, listings and didn't find anything recently, so I think maybe it would be time, if possible, for you to help us out and guide us in um, trying to figure out what to do this fall. Thank you so much for all the work you do. I think we need your voice more than ever right now. And I'm hoping that you can help me figure out how to streamline this for the friends of mine who are still stuck with trying to object to Hillary. And I feel like you do, that that's really not where we need to be right now and where we can put our efforts to best have an impact. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Quick update on Climate Ride Fundraiser. We are up another about eight donors, bringing us to 76 total. I just said in the last show, I would love to see a total total of 200 donors contributing. You know, it doesn't matter the size of the donation. I would just love to see a lot of people giving, you know, if you can only give a little bit, give a little bit. So we are down to only needing an additional $2,300. We're absolutely in the home stretch. And let's see if we can do this in the next 20 days. Technically, the end of August is the absolute drop dead deadline. 
but don't make me panic at the very last moment. So let's say the deadline is only 20 days from now. Give ourselves a little bit of a cushion. $2,300, 20 days, the most doable thing in the world. So huge thanks to the most recent donors, Terry, Tim, Reese, Alexander, William, Eileen, Betsy, and Adam. Uh, huge thanks to everyone who has contributed so far and everyone that will. Uh, again, simply just go to bestoftheleft.com, click on the summer fundraiser banner. There you will get all of the details on contributing to my climate ride to send money to uh, excellent climate change organizations. And uh, you can sign up for a membership to support this show at the same time and get a free t-shirt or hoodie as my gift to you. And for members who sign up, uh, I like to tell you every once in a while about the bonus content I've been putting out. Uh, the most recent one I put out this week is uh, it's, it's sort of a conversation on the way marginalized communities react to their oppressors and the conversations that that spurs. So I'm sure you're familiar if you think for a moment, like, okay, so like Black Lives Matter are reacting to their situation. They're trying to improve uh, their lot in life. They're trying to fight against uh, the the powers that they see as oppressive. And then what happens inevitably is that they are criticized for their actions. They're, they're criticized for their tactics, their strategies, even by people who support them. They'll say, hey, I support everything you're doing, but you're doing it wrong. And so I, I sort of laid out some various thoughts in several different directions about how that conversation goes and why and what critical elements of it are very often missing, uh, the elements that I like to focus on. So that is the most recent members show. Uh, so for everyone who signs up as a member, please make sure to take advantage of that. Uh, and now finally, in the last episode, I was talking about a theory of change, you know, my, my own personal sort of like made it up uh, in the spur of the moment idea to, you know, get some real voting reform through. And this is sort of in response to the Bernie or bust or the Jill not Hill movement saying, okay, the, the whole voting system is messed up. Uh, the two party system is messed up. Uh, I give up. I, you know, I'm just voting third party, whether it makes any mathematical sense or not, or even if it may result in, uh, you know, Trump getting elected, which would be substantially worse in a whole lot of ways for a whole lot of people uh, than Hillary, regardless of your criticisms of Hillary. And, uh, and so I said, look, if you want third party voting to be viable, you have to change the way we vote. You need something like a ranked option, uh, instant runoff voting system where you can vote for a third party as your first choice and then have a fallback. So if you want to vote Green Party at the, at the top and then Democrat as your second choice, that will bring in a flood of new people voting third party. Because a lot of the reason people don't vote third party now is because they understand the math of it and they think that very rightly mathematically, maybe not morally, but mathematically, voting third party is throwing your vote away in the presidential election, if you're in a swing state at the very least. So uh, if you have something like a ranked choice voting system, you're going to get a lot of those people who understand the math and say, oh, great, 
Now I can vote third party, but not feel like I'm throwing my vote away. That's what you need to reform the system. Well, a listener uh, introduced me to uh, one of the new episodes of Freakonomics Radio, in which they discuss this exact topic, and it turns out that the ranked voting system that I'm in favor of has even more benefits that I didn't even know about uh, that should actually make it an appealing reform, even for established parties, uh, not just third parties. So if established parties would be interested in putting this in place, then we actually have a chance of getting it passed. So here's just a tiny clip from that show. We need to change the way we currently vote. That's Howard Dean. My title is former, former governor, former chairman of the DNC, former presidential candidate. The DNC, for those who don't know, is the Democratic National Committee. If I could do a single thing in American politics, it would be to get rid of the single vote for your favorite candidate. Right now, we vote for one person, and that person either wins or it doesn't win. That is, if there's 10 candidates in a race, you get one vote. There's a system called ranked choice voting where you don't get just your vote for the top choice that you have. You also get to vote on all the other choices, and you get to rank them. So that if your candidate doesn't win, your second choice vote counts. What that does is create, as the winner, the person who is best respected and best liked overall in the electorate. It's just a good system. The other thing about it is that it makes people behave themselves better. Uh, San Francisco put in ranked choice voting a few years ago, and they had the most polite mayor's campaign that you ever saw, because if you're hoping to get somebody's second or third choice vote, if you know they're not going to get their first, you're not going to say anything bad about them in the campaign, because you drive those voters away, and those are the voters that eventually get you elected. So ranked choice voting simply means uh, that you get multiple choices, you can weight your choices, and the candidate that the most people like, and usually the one that's the most reasonable, becomes the next mayor, the next president, the next senator. And I think that makes voters happy, it makes politicians behave better, and it's something that's coming slowly to the United States, and where we have it, it works well. And as for mail-in voting, like the caller from Oregon was talking about, uh, pretty much all I know about it is that people from Oregon won't shut up about how much they love their voting system. So frankly, I assume it must work pretty well. The only concern I've heard is that it really might allow for the kind of voter fraud that Republicans are so worried about everywhere else where it literally doesn't exist. You know, if you're doing it by mail, then who knows who's really filling out the form and sending it in. Uh, I, I would love to hear any explanation, especially anyone from Oregon, for why the vote-by-mail system is secure. I would love for it to be, uh, generally, I think it sounds like a great idea. It would certainly increase voter turnout, uh, obviously. So keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry.
See you next time.